loving Father in heaven. Lord, we can only smile because of you. You are the source and the author of all good things in our lives. And I pray now, Lord, because you know in me dwelleth no good thing, but from you comes every good and perfect gift. And I ask that you would speak through me now to every single one who can hear my voice, whether on tape or right now, that it may change their hearts, that it may draw them to Jesus. For in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I was asked to speak about better promises. And I can tell you that the greatest promise that I've ever gotten in my life came just last year. And it was as a result of a very bad situation. I was called in by my boss and said, hey, we need to have a meeting. And uh, unfortunately, those things aren't like, well, I just wanted to see how you're doing. Are you uh, enjoying the new ER? You like the staff? You like our new CT scanner? They're, they usually don't do that uh, when they ask you to meet them. And so I asked my friends, I said, please pray for me about this meeting. I'm not sure what my boss is going to say. And I got a text message that led me down a path that changed my life. I mean, how many people's lives were changed by a text message? That's like your life being changed by one of those forwarded emails that you always delete, right? It says, praying for you. I'm claiming Luke 12 that he will give you the words to say when you need them. Whatever happens, I'm proud of you. Nice, smiley, cheerful little text message. But it bothered me. It bothered me a lot, uh, especially the last part, because it said, whatever happens, I'm proud of you, right? Now, what is whatever? Whatever could be a lot of things. It could be, you know, you're the best doctor we've ever had. We're going to double your salary and cut your hours in half. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> or it could mean, you know, you, uh, you must have gotten your training on hooked on phonics or something like that. <laughs> and you're just dangerous around patients. You're not even just bad. You're dangerous. You're fired. That could be whatever, right? But, you know, I thought about it a long time because I've worked since I was 15, full-time and part-time, my whole life. Never been fired from any job. And if I was fired, I wouldn't be proud of me. I'd say, you know, what a lame-o, what a loser. You know, what a horrible witness, right, for the people that I work with, because they all know I'm Adventist. They all know uh, that Riesenberger wants Sabbath off again. So I didn't understand that. And I began to pray about it. And God led me to a story that changed my life. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 25. 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 25. Now in all Israel, 
there was no one to be praised so much for what? His beauty as Absalom. Now, who was Absalom? David's first son. David's first son. Wow, that's very exact. I don't think I've had anyone come up with that right away. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was what? No blemish. He was perfect. He was GQ personified. He was the man. And what did he do every year? Does anyone remember? He cut his hair. You know, I can imagine that uh, when he cut his hair, because it was quite a bit if you see how much it weighed, I imagine that people wanted like a lock of that hair. And not just people, probably the single female Israelites wanted a lock of that hair every year. But unfortunately, beauty is often just skin deep. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, as the scene opens, we find a long line of people. And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for David. Yes. Waiting for David to do what? Judge. To judge them, right? Long line. And David is getting older now, right? His government is less efficient. And thus the long line of injustices that need to be addressed. And who walks up to these people that are waiting in line? Absalom. They say, hey, you know, how's it going? Where are you from? Well, I'm from such and such tribe of Israel. And well, what's the problem? Well, you know, my neighbor's goat keeps getting in my yard. I mean, it's like the fourth time, and I'm just, you know, we haven't been able to settle it. And I'm here for judgment from the king. And he says, your cause is good and right. But there is what? No one deputed of the king to hear you. And when they came to bow down to him, it says to do obeisance to him. What did he, how did he respond? Because he was what? He was the prince, right? It was customary for them to bow to him. But he wouldn't allow that. What did he do instead? He would take them by the hand, right? And he would lift them up. And he would, he would kiss them. So he was secure in his masculinity. <laughs> And in verse 6, we find out what his purpose in this was. Was it to promote loyalty to his father, the king? It says, in this manner, Absalom did what? Stole the hearts of the men of Israel. But as in most cases like this, it gets worse. Drop down to verses 10 through 12. And Absalom sent spies throughout all Israel. And they were going to proclaim that David reigns, right? In Hebrew. Is that what they said? Absalom reigns. And he had 200 guys that went with them. And they didn't know anything. They were just sucked in by accident. And Absalom chose Ahithophel, David's counselor from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew, what? Strong. For the people continually increased with Absalom. Now, who was Ahithophel? Does anyone remember who he was? Aha, the grandfather of Bathsheba. If you doubt that, you can go to 2 Samuel um, 24, 32, 
or, and, and also you have to compare that to 2 Samuel 11, 3. Um, and then you can piece it together that it was indeed uh, the grandfather, grand, grandfather of Bathsheba. And so how do you think he felt about David? Probably wasn't uh, enthused, right? I mean, how would you feel? Your granddaughter, right, has the, uh, you know, the governor of California or, well, anyway, the president maybe of the United States, that'd be a little bit closer, assassinate your grandson-in-law after he commits adultery and impregnates your granddaughter. And what happens to the president? Nothing, apparently, that you can see, right? How would you feel about that? You wouldn't feel that was fair, did you? Oh, yeah, there was what this prophet said that would happen to him. But, hey, I don't see any harm coming to the president. He was waiting to even the score. And he found his opportunity. But it gets worse. Go to chapter 16. Verse 11, move to chapter 16, verse 11, and Absalom and his army march on Jerusalem. And does David take his stand in Jerusalem and fight? No. no, he doesn't. He takes those that are loyal to him and he leaves. And as he's going out, a guy meets him and starts throwing rocks at him and dirt. And he says, yeah, that's right. You better leave. You better run because God is getting you back for all of the blood that you have shed of the house of Saul, the Shimei. And his, his men in the army are saying, please, all I need is 30 seconds. Just, just 30 seconds. Remove head from body very quickly. No problem. It's cool, you know. I'll just do it myself. And David says, no. In verse 11, he says, look, my son that came out of my own body is seeking what? My life. How much more should this man? But if you can believe it, it even gets worse. Drop down to verse 20 of chapter 16. 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 20. So Absalom has set up his kingdom now in Israel, in Jerusalem. And he says, give counsel. What should we do? And Ahithophel's ready. He said, here's a bright idea. And he suggests that Absalom sleep with his father's wives. Now, does this happen secretly? Does this happen, you know, in the basement? We are told that it happened on the roof. In the sight of who? Of all Israel. Friends, you don't get worse than this kind of sin. Because Ellen White tells us in Patriarchs and Prophets when explaining this passage that Absalom added to his sins of rebellion and murder the sin of incest. Don't think about it too long. So we drop down to chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. David is ready to make his last stand against the armies of his son. And does David have the majority on his side? We are told by the spirit of prophecy that compared to Absalom's forces, his army was a little handful. 
he had unsurmountable odds against him. And so he divides his forces up into three, under the three generals. And as they're marching out, read in this passage, he gives them some final battle orders. Does he quote maybe Joshua 1.9 to them? Be strong and of a good courage. Does he say that? Does he maybe sing them a psalm? Right? Does he say, my God will be with you that has been with me from my youth? Is that what he tells his generals? What does he say? And it's interesting. Ellen White tells us that he repeats the command three times, once to each general. And does he whisper it in their ear? He says it to everybody that can hear him in the army. And what does he say? Deal gently with the young man, even Absalom. Now, I'll fast forward through the battle. God, by a miracle of his divine power, gives the victory to David's forces. And Absalom, as he's realizing he's defeated, he goes to flee, but something happens. He gets caught in a tree by what? His precious hair. And the mule keeps going. So he's kind of just dangling there in the middle of the air, and a soldier finds him. And what does he do? He leaves him, right? And he finds Joab, and he says, you know, um, Absalom's like hanging in a tree. <laughs> and he's like, you just saw him? Why didn't you take him out? I'd have given you a reward. And if you look in verse 12, the soldier said, though I would have received a thousand shekels of silver by your hand. This is a pretty bold statement to say to his general, isn't it? I would not have killed him because you remember what the king said in our hearing. Beware lest any what? Touch the young man Absalom. And Joab says, whatever, just stay here. And he takes not one, not two, but three spears and thrusts them into the heart of Absalom. And as he's in shock there, you know, ten guys surround him, wail on him till he dies. They throw him in a pit, throw a bunch of rocks in. That's the end of Absalom. So they send messengers to go give word to who? To the king. He's waiting in the city, right? He wanted to go out with the army, but what did everyone say? Whoa, no. You got to stay in the city because they don't care about us. They're just going to kill you. And so a messenger comes first. And he arrives and says, we are victorious. Does David say, praise the Lord. I knew that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be with me. Is that what he says? Maybe he sings a song of victory. He has only one question for the messenger. Look in verse 29. David, in 18, chapter 18, verse 29, has only one question. Is the young man Absalom safe? And the messenger kind of gives an ambivalent answer, not really sure. And he says, okay, just wait over here. Oh, another messenger is coming. And he says, God has delivered you from your enemies. 
Does David say, at least praise the Lord? Thank you. Is that what he says? Do you realize that David, in verse 32, repeats the exact same words? Is the young man Absalom safe? And he says, may everyone of your enemies who rises up to do you harm be like that young man. And so David hears the news and he realizes what has happened. I want us to focus in very carefully on 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 33. Let's read that. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, thus he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God that what? I had died for thee. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I have a question for you. Did David love Absalom because he was a loyal citizen? Do you realize what war in the United States took more lives than all of our wars combined? The Civil War. The Civil War where brother was fighting brother. And Absalom had caused the worst rebellion in the history of Israel. Did David perhaps love Absalom because he was a loving son? He's trying to kill his dad. Murder the one who gave him life. Did David love Absalom because he had a moral character? Friends, you don't get worse than incest. Times ten. And so, my question to you is this. If that's not why David loved Absalom, then why did he love Absalom? Because wicked though he was, he was, after all, his son. And at that moment, I understood a promise from God. I heard three words that I'll never forget the rest of my life. And it wasn't like I heard a voice and I opened the closet to see, you know, is someone in there? There wasn't fire on the ceiling. But I fell to my knees because it was God's voice, because it was a new thought in my mind, something different than I had ever thought of before. And it went something like this, Tim, I don't love you because you're a doctor and you save people's lives every day. I don't love you because you dedicate time every month to do my work. I don't love you because you give your money away to my cause. I don't love you because you're a Seventh-day Adventist or a Christian. I don't love you because you keep my commandments though these things please me. 
They are not the reason I love you. I love you, and here are the three words that I will never forget. Because you're mine. And at that moment, I saw God. And I cried more than I've ever cried in my life. It's kind of like the dehydrating cry. You, like, your tear ducts are empty, and nothing else comes out. And I realized at that moment that I had been seeing this truth in my job every day. And I never understood. 15-year-old boy came into the emergency room, critically ill, level one trauma, T-boned driver, not breathing, heart not beating. The paramedics come in, they're doing CPR, and I keep hearing this crunch every time they're doing it. And I'm like, whoa. So I intubate him, start him on the machine, and blood comes up the tube. Put in a central line, start blood, start resuscitating him. Put a chest tube in the side, and just pure blood flows out. A liter, two liters. And I realize that this 15-year-old boy will die. And I hear a voice in the corner of the room saying, why? Why did I let him drive this morning? A passenger had also been in the car and was thrown clear of the damage. Who was that person, do you think? It was his father. Dr. Riesenberger, we need an order and triage stat for an IV and antiemetics. I'm like, wow, why don't you just put them in a room? We don't have any rooms. I said, okay. How old, how heavy? Eight-year-old female. Okay, write the orders. They finally find a room. I hear vomiting over and over and over and over again. I said, why don't you add something else? Give her some Anzimet, some Zofran. Write some more. Keep going. She keeps vomiting. This eight-year-old girl looks like she's five. She has no hair. She vomits up her lunch. Then she vomits up clear. Then she vomits up yellow, then green, then blood. And we can't stop it. The chemotherapy she's on is unable to be reversed by our medicines. And I hear a voice in the corner saying, why, why couldn't I have had the cancer instead of my little baby? And you know who that was? That was her mother. I can tell you, I've been running traumas, and I usually try to be very conservative. I say, okay, I want four units of O negative, and I want you to stay four units ahead all the time. In other words, I always want four units sitting there in case I need to infuse them. And I've had people say, you know, we're out of O negative. And I've seen people get on the gurney next to the patient and say, I have O negative right here. And you know who that is? It's the father of the child. I've had conversations with two individuals standing in front of me, I said, you know what? Your daughter, their kidneys are failing. She's in shock right now. And I've heard them say, I have two. You can have one of my kidneys. Are these people Christian? Not one of them. Not one of them was Christian. 
but they understand the promise of God that does not change. They understand the love they have for their son and their daughter that doesn't depend on anything except the fact that they are mine. They belong to me and they are part of me. But perhaps you think in your mind, well, it's too late for me. I've gone too far. I've committed the unpardonable, what? Sin. Do you want to know when the unpardonable sin occurs? I'll tell you. I get a medic call. Dr. Riesenberg, afraid we got a blue baby coming in. I'm like, oh, all right. How old? Seven months. What's your ETA? Five minutes. All right. Respiratory. I, I need peds down here. I need <coughs> nurses. I need chest x-ray down. Let's get ready. So they're doing CPR on the child. And they're giving the child oxygen. They didn't intubate the child, unfortunately. So I managed to snake that little straw, and Rachel knows that little straw of a tube, through those little vocal cords into the trachea, and we start ventilating the child and continuing CPR. I put a central line in, and I begin the gauntlet of ACLS, Advanced Cardiac Life Support. OK, um, V-fib, OK, shock him. How much? One joule per kilo. Let's start with two. Boom, nothing. Okay, give me a round of epi, give me a round of atropine, nothing. Keep going, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes go by. And at 30 minutes, something always happens. I always hear some footsteps behind me. And they wait, and I wait, let's see, okay, about 30 seconds. And then I feel a tap on my shoulder. And who is it? It's always the same person. Well, not always the same person. It's the father. And he says, Dr. Riesenberg, I appreciate all you've done so far for my boy. But I've been looking at your monitor, and I, I just have seen a flat line the whole time. And I have appreciated you putting him on your machine and giving him your medicines, but I haven't seen him move over an hour and right now I need to know something I need to know is there any what hope always the same question and if I say you know I actually saw some activity on the monitor it was on my monitor it wasn't on yours you didn't see it and I saw him move earlier and actually he took a breath one time on his own I think we still have a chance here what would he say Keep going. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm just going to wait in this corner and not say anything anymore. But that wasn't the case. I looked into his eyes. And I said, Mr. Johnson, you're right. There is no hope. We have done all that we can. And it wouldn't matter if I went for five more minutes or five more hours. Even if we brought your son back with his heart and his breathing, his brain is gone. I'm sorry. We've done all we can. 
And he cried, and his wife cried. And do you think they said, well, shock him a few more times. Maybe put in another line, maybe another foley. You think they said that? No, they didn't. They did what all parents tell me to do at this moment. And they said, Dr. Riesenberger, would you mind just unplugging the ventilator and taking out the tubes and just giving us a few moments to say goodbye to our little one? I said, absolutely. And I said, time of death is 2.34 a.m. Clear your sharps, pull the vent, and give the Johnsons some time with their son. And I walk out of the room, and I understand when God gives up on you. It's when there's no more hope. Because how long did David hope for his son? until he was gone. His question over and over again is, where is my son? Is he alive? But when he knew he was gone, he knew that no matter what happened at that point, there was no coming back. And when God understands that you have reached a point where blessing or disaster will not move you, he lets you go. He's not going to shock you again. Why? Why would I do that to a child? Why would I make the last moments of their existence pain? I would never do that. And neither would God. But don't you see that it's even different? Because David loved Absalom with a father's love. But how many does God love? David had love for Absalom, but it was a human love, and it was a preferential love, right? He wasn't thinking about anyone else but who? Absalom. But God loves each one of us as though we were the only ones for whom Christ what? died. He loves us all because we're His we belong to him. David said in verse 33, would to God that what? I died instead of you, but Jesus did die for you and for me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. There is a promise. You know, we always quote it in Romans 8, right? What will separate us from the love of God? But we always add something in, don't we? Will life or death or angels or principality? But we always add something that's not in the Bible. We say, accept our choice, don't we? Have you heard that? I've heard people say that. Would you love your son or daughter any less? Let's say Mitchell went and dyed his hair green. He got a lip piercing or you know, something strange. He moved in with his girlfriend. Not a suggestion. <laughs> Would you love him less, Chris? You'd probably spend more time. And that's why 
in Matthew 18, 12. That's why God leaves the 99, don't you see? If I asked you, I said, what percentage of your kids do you want to be saved? All of them? Well, how about, how about the majority? How about 90%? That's an A. Would that be enough for any of you? How about 99%? That'd be all right? Just one. You would not rest until they were all there. And I can tell you right now, when you get to heaven, when you come up in the first resurrection, you are going to raise to life in immortal beauty. But you're going to look for someone right away, aren't you? Who are you going to look for? Your family. And when you look and you see that Caitlin is not there, you are going to be happy in heaven. But you're going to come straight to the throne of God, are you not? And you're going to ask one question that contains one word. And you're going to say, why? And you know what God's going to tell you? He's going to walk you through the streets of gold. And he's going to point to empty mansion after empty mansion and say, why? There was no reason. I'm sorry. I did all that I could to save her. But I could not. I had a place prepared for my daughter and for yours in the homes of glory. And the beautiful thing about this story is that you can't come to the wrong conclusion, right? Because 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us this, and it makes perfect sense. God is long-suffering to usward, not willing that how many? many. How many? Any. any should perish. That is not His will. Do you realize that? He is not willing that the 144,000, that the great multitude, no, any, but that how many should come to repentance? All. All. But can you imagine if I put my arms around this family and I said, well, Mrs. Johnson, I see you have a number of little kids and you're young. You could have some more kids and name them Johnny and replace the one you lost. What would she say? She'd say, are you a moron? And then I would lose my job the next day. It doesn't mean anything. And God could do this, right? God could take your brother, Aaron, right? And if he was lost, he could create another Aaron. And he could change your mind, couldn't he? And everyone's mind so that when you saw it, it's Aaron. But who would know? God would know. He would know for all eternity that Aaron is gone. Don't you see? God loves you. Because you're His. And that doesn't change. But even though God wants all to be saved, will all be saved? No, we know that. I mean, that's why there's the perfect story. Because Absalom, at the end of the story, despite David's unconditional love, is lost. Right? And I'm telling you right now, if you continue in sin, you will die. You will be lost. There is no question. But God is going to mourn 
as he mourns for his only son, if you die and are lost. I have heard it. You know, I had someone send me an email saying that God doesn't love us when our probation closes and we're lost. It's true. This is true. I get these emails. But Ezekiel 33:11, my Bible tells me that I have no pleasure in the death of who? The righteous? The wicked. Hosea 11:8. Look it up on the Spirit of Prophecy. It's talking about when probation closes for Judas, for Israel. What does Hosea 11:8 say? How can I give you up? How can I let you go? I can't do it. But can you imagine? Back in the ER, I tell the family, yes, there's no hope. And she says, can you pull the vent? Can you pull the tubes? And I say, you pull the plug. Could you do it? I can't do it. It's my boy. But do you realize what God has to do? At the end of time, God is the only one who can give and take away life. God must lower you himself into your destruction. And it's going to break him in half. And he's going to say, yeah, you get what you deserve. No. You know what he's going to say? I have heard it dozens of times as I walk out of the room and listen through the curtain. And it goes something like this. Goodbye, our little treasure. We're sorry. Mommy and Daddy tried. The doctors did all they could. Go to sleep now. Go to sleep. But God has to say something harder. He has to say sleep now to the night where comes no morning. Go to the darkness that never receives light. Goodbye, my child. And he has to let you go. And I can tell you, for me, what has this done? It has changed my life. It has changed me completely. Have any of you ever woken up in the middle of the night? It's totally dark. And then you don't know where you are. Has this ever happened to you? This happened to me. And it wasn't because I was hungover or anything like that. I woke up. I don't know where I am. You don't even know which side of the bed your head is on, right? You wake up. But when someone cracks the door open and a little light comes in, what do you know? You know where you are. You know where your head is. You know where the window is. You know where the door is. And God has cracked the door of my heart. And I see him at last. And that does something to me. Because as I look at this story, there was one who was created perfect. Right? Who rebelled against his father. Who lied about the king. Who committed spiritual adultery with his father's bride and tried to kill his father. Who was that? It was Lucifer. The great controversy is so clear in the story. And if God's love is greater than David's, you're not too bad. And even if you're lost, it doesn't change God's love. He longs for you. 
But there is a difference between Satan and I, between you and I. It's Desire of Agents, page 761 and 762. But even as a sinner, man was in a different place than that of Satan. Lucifer in heaven sinned in the light of God's glory. To him, as to no other created being, was given a revelation of God's love. Knowing his goodness, understanding his character, Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. Why was it final? Next sentence. This choice was final. There was no thing, nothing more that God could do to save him. What did Lucifer do in heaven? What was his job? So God's here. Where was Lucifer? He was right there. You, you can't get any closer. You'd be behind God if you got any closer. And what is it that leads you to repentance? Romans 2.4. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. How much goodness did Satan know? He knew it all. Now I'm going to continue with the passage. This choice was final, but man was deceived. His mind was darkened by the sophistry of Satan. The height and depth of the love of God he did not know. For him there was hope in a knowledge of God's love. Do you realize that's where our hope is? By beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. And that beam of light coming through that door that's cracked is a tractor beam from my life. It's drawing me back to God. And I pray that you see God now. You see, my whole life, all my waywardness, all my sinfulness, every promise in the Bible, every counsel in the spirit of prophecy, everything that's written, don't you realize it's just your dad trying to get you back? I just run away from my dad this whole time. But not anymore. Not anymore. I have decided to be rebaptized when I learned this. And I'm going to give you a chance to do that too. We're going to hand out some cards. And there are a number of boxes there. One, if you have never been baptized before and you would like to study, to understand God better, to see Him as I have, to understand that the promise that nothing shall separate us from the love of God means nothing. Nothing you can do will change God's love for you. And that changes you. If you feel that you have received a new understanding of who God is since you were baptized, perhaps you have learned greater light, check the box that says rebaptism. If you'd like a prayer request, there is a space for that too. And I want you to know that everything written on these cards is confidential, and I pray for every single one of them. If you'd like to meet with myself and or Carissa McSherry, who are doing the counseling together, you can check that box too. And we will do our best to meet with each and every one of you. I'd like to ask someone to come and play the piano just softly for a moment. Thank you. As you're filling out these cards, I pray that you would understand who you are in God's eyes at last. If you're a parent, I know you understand because you're all bawling right now. 
If you're not a parent like myself, hopefully you've seen it. That God loves you greater than anything else. I'll close with Isaiah 43, verse 1. Isaiah 43, verse 1. And what I want you to do is put your name in this verse. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. But now thus saith the Lord that created you, O Tim, and he that formed you, my son, fear not, for I have redeemed you I have called thee by thy name. Here's the promise. What are those three words? Thou art mine. And when you understand that, something will happen. The next verse. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, you shall not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Do you realize that you're invincible? when you understand God's promise. Because things could change my life. I didn't lose my job, by the way, FYI. But I could have, right? I could lose my job. I could lose my house, my car. I could be kicked out of the Adventist church. All of you could say, you know, Tim, we're tired of listening about Jesus. And we've heard the sermon like nine times. All right, we're done with you. But something wouldn't change. And that's what my dad thinks about me and the great love that he has for my soul. As we close, let us kneel for prayer and respond to God right now. Loving Father in heaven, and truly it is Father in heaven, I have heard you tell me because you're mine. And those words ring in my head every morning and every evening since I've learned that. But I say something different now, and I pray that every person in this audience will say the same thing. Yes, I've heard, because you're mine. But today I say, because I'm yours. In Jesus' name.